The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're going to talk about sex and gender. And they're not the same thing. And there are a lot of them. They are not. Yeah. Well, yep. Um, Spoiler. But. but (laughs) TLDR. TLDL. Anyway, before we get into that, first of all, thank you to all our supporters on Patreon who help make this show possible by throwing us a couple bucks each month. If you're a fan of the show, you can support us too by going to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Becoming a supporter gets you access to awesome bonus content, including weekly video recordings of the podcast. And thanks to all of you who listen, no matter how or where or why uh tell people about the show and leave reviews on apple Podcasts and other places that casts are potted it really does help us out a whole lot it does okay onward we go this week's topic was inspired by a news story that came out recently about revolutionary war hero casimir pulaski here is coverage of the story from forbes online magazine by uh one of our favorite authors and podcast patron saint christina kilgrove Quote, Revolutionary war hero and father of the American cavalry, Casimir Pulaski gained fame when he saved George Washington's life and became a general in the Continental Army. Along with Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette, Pulaski was an immigrant who fought for freedom in both his home country and his adopted one. But unlike other revolutionary figures, Pulaski did not survive the war, perishing in the Battle of Savannah in 1779. He left a legacy, but no descendants. A monument to Pulaski was erected in Savannah in 1825 with the very same Lafayette, Marquis de, laying the cornerstone. While stories about Pulaski's death and the disposition of his body swirled, the Bowen family, which held the Greenwich Plantation in Georgia for generations, insisted that Pulaski was buried on their land. In 1854, skeletal remains were found where Bowen said they would be, and they were placed into the newly completed monument. The skeletal remains stayed in the monument until 1996, when researchers wondered if those bones were really Pulaski's. It took seven years for the volunteer team, including a medical examiner, a genealogist, forensic anthropologist, historian, and secretary, gotta have a secretary, to complete work on the skeleton and attempt to extract DNA, which was then compared to a maternal great-grandniece of Pulaski. While the DNA did not confirm the bones were Pulaski's, neither did it exclude the possibility. But here's an interesting detail, which is um, inserted not from uh, Dr. Kilgrove's article, but from Live Science. The skeleton also preserved known details from Pulaski's life, such as height and build, an old heel injury, and wear in the hip sockets consistent with long-term horseback riding. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, some forensic stuff a little later on. So uh, back to the Forbes article. So even though the first quote, Pulaski Identification Committee came up short on the DNA front, their osteological findings were intriguing. 
Forensic anthropologist Karen Ramey Burns found that the skeleton had features more in line with the female than male sex. The skeleton, for example, had here's some here's comes some jargon, had a wide subpubic angle, a narrow ischiopubic ramus, a preauricular sulcus, Anna. and a wide sciatic notch. What? I can't say sulcus. This is a family show. (laughs) This is a family program. And a wide sciatic notch, all of which added up to a female-looking pelvis. We're going to talk a little bit more about pelvic morphology later on, so get excited, everybody. Additionally, the skull was very gracile, also suggesting potentially female biological sex. However... Other than biological sex, attributes of the skeleton lined up well with what was historically known about Pulaski. Age at death, short height, light body build, healed right hand fracture, osteoarthritis in the hip joints, and facial proportions similar to paintings of him. Um, And here's a quote from anthropologist Virginia Hutton Estabrook of Georgia Southern University. Quote, although these skeletal features were consistent with the Pulaski monument remains actually being Pulaski, without genetic confirmation, none of the features was unique enough to confirm this identification. So despite a lot of the skeletal features lining up with what was known about Pulaski's life, um, they didn't confirm it. Enter NBC News. So there was a story that came out April 5th, 2019. So very, very recently for Mm -hmm. us as we're recording. Recording this on the 12th. Yes. And the headline was Revolutionary War Hero Casimir Pulaski might have been a woman or intersex. Um, Mm -hmm. Which, like, Mm -hmm. and that launched a thousand other articles that were basically like Pulaski. Maybe a not man, and like <laughs> deeply, deeply problematic, problematic terminology. And really also, was... um, I'm gonna quote. So I'm just gonna read the first two paragraphs. Um, sorry, Corky, uh, the author of this article, um, mm-hmm. Kosimir Pulaski, hero of the Revolutionary War and the pride of the Polish American community, may need a new pronoun. He may have been a she or even a they. Researchers who use DNA to identify Pulaski's bones are convinced the gallant Pole who died fighting for America's freedom was either a biological woman who lived as a man or potentially was intersex, meaning a person whose body doesn't fit the standard definitions of male or female. No, that's not what it means. Yes. So (laughs) this is this resulted in me texting this to Anna and being like, we got to fire up that episode about (laughs) sex and gender and intersex because... This is not how any of this works. Yeah. So tell us how it does work, please. Okay. Great. I, I, that wasn't enough. <laughs> so, I would like some like... more, please. <laughs> okay. So intersex is a blanket term for a number of conditions in which development patterns don't all fit neatly into exclusively male or female categories, meaning outside the a binary uh biological determination exactly like a like two Mm -hmm. buckets of categories not everything fits in those two buckets for instance babies that are genetically female being two x chromosomes may have an enlarged clitoris that resembles a penis while babies that are genetically male one x and one y chromosome may have an abnormally small penis and no testicles according to the mayo clinic We don't know what percentage of people are intersex, but estimates usually place it at around 1%. Some intersex people have ambiguous genitalia that is visible at birth or emerges later during puberty. An intersex person might also develop other male and female secondary sex characteristics during puberty. 
Um, some people know they are intersex from either their own knowledge of their bodies or medical observation, but not everybody with a mix of male and female sex characteristics, not everybody is aware of it or even identifies as intersex. Pulaski may not have known whether he had any intersex characteristics, and even if he had, he might have still thought of himself as male. But even so, this knowledge changes our understanding of him and broadens our understanding of intersex people in history. Uh, there are and will continue to be many debates about how to categorize people who don't conform to normative sex or gender categories. Um, since researchers announced in 2017 that a Viking warrior assumed to be male was actually female, there has been much speculation about whether this person was seen as a man or a woman. Um, or whether there were alternate roles in the society exter external to the man-woman binary. Because also we're looking at this from a perspective of there being men and women. And right. then very occasionally something else. But that is not representative of all contemporary societies or all possible societies throughout history. So right. they could have just been... Exactly. It could have just all been what we would see as other... Just a different mm -hmm. different categories. Um, these are the kinds of questions that 30 years ago, researchers might not have even thought to ask. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, you know, which is great. questions are always great. So so this is, so the revolutionary war hero Pulaski is a great entree to this conversation. <laughs> so classy. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of classy, yes. why don't you help? Okay, so we're going to start with DNA because <laughs> the this thing is like Jurassic Park. <laughs> Picture a dancing cartoon DNA molecule. No, um, because the things that make you you, whether you are – the things that give you your physical characteristics, that is your DNA. And there are multiple types of DNA. There is autosomal DNA that exists in your body cells and basically tells all of your cells. So it tells a stomach cell to be a stomach cell. It tells a liver cell to be a liver cell. So it makes your cells specific to the role that they need to play in your body. There is also the DNA that exists in gametes, which are sex cells. So sperm and eggs, which each are one cell. And the DNA exists in the nucleus of that cell. And when those cells are made, each sperm and each egg contains half the amount of DNA that a human needs, which is 23 chromosomes. So all human beings have 23 and pairs me. of chromosomes or 46 chromosomes. So you get half from mom and half from dad. So you have 23 in the egg, 23 in the sperm, and they add up together to be 46 chromosomes. Okay. So- of those 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, yeah. the 23rd pair oh, are your sex chromosomes. And if you are female, you have an X and an X. If you are male, you have an X and a, and a Y chromosome. If you are intersex, something else is going on with your DNA. Something else is going on that writes your body's architecture slightly differently than it would if you were simply XX or XY. Okay. So there is a distinction between your biological sex, whatever that is, and your gender. But, right, because Right. Yes. But question? also isn't there more isn't there more gradation than XXXY? Yes. Because there's absolutely and, and you can, I, I read I read an article about this on uh -huh. the bus once. 
Uh-huh. Um, but it's something where there's like at minimum like six like scene variations that there are multiple variations that you can have, which is a result of so um, cells reproduce themselves by dividing. And when that happens, the chromosomes also divide. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that division doesn't occur correctly. Um, so sometimes you get maybe an extra X chromosome or um, something like that. And that those are the, the variations that you're talking about. And there are multiple names for them. So one is, I think, Kleinfelter syndrome, um, where uh, I think it's where a female has an extra chromosome. It might be that it's XXY. I'm not, I'm definitely not a genetics yeah. expert, but so there are multiple combinations of X and Y chromosomes, but the the vast majority of of humans have either XX or XY. And so as I just looked this up again, um, mm-hmm. because this was another thing that I remember reading when I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on intersex information. Um, so red hair, mm-hmm. people with red hair, like me, it's mm-hmm. about the same percentage of the human population has red hair as is intersex. But it's important to note that that's not in any way a corollary. No, no, I'm no. <laughs> they're well, not I'm just saying, they're not equated but the proportions are the same. You're right. But so what I'm saying is red hair is not it's not doubted it's, in its existence. Right. Oh, I I'm, see what I'm you making mean. a like a more of a like Co- social epi- commentary epi- point. Yes, like more of like an epistemological pro- question. Like that So it's wh- a small, I mean the point pres- it's a small but real. So this mm-hmm. isn't something that is it's not some something that's based on how someone identifies necessarily. It is a biological fact. Right. Based on your genes. Yes. So speaking of genes, your sex, your biological sex is determined by your genes. Your gender is much more complex and determined by cultural norms and perceptions and your own uh, perception of yourself and how you see yourself in the world and how you identify. So there is a very specific difference between sex and gender. And so while we we could say to some extent that we can determine sex in archaeology, we can determine from archaeological remains, we can determine someone's biological sex to some extent, to a pretty good extent. Can we gender archaeology? Question mark. So here are it's a quick rundown of things that are used or have been used to identify gender in archaeology for better or worse, usually worse. Bows. As it turns out. Yes. Little pink bows. Hair bows. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. So ancient gender roles are frequently reconstructed based on the belief that labor was divided according to biological sex, despite the knowledge that gender is formed by more than the activities that people do. So this is like coming from archaeology, kind of early archaeology, like women are tending the babies, men are going out to hunt, but it's it's evolved. Um, I just feel like I should put a plug in there, like it's not all bad. Um, In such studies, quote, male activities are often perceived as highly active, mobile, and creative, so hunting, trading, farming, smithing, flint napping, and so on, no matter what form of society is being investigated. In contrast, Joan Garrow in 1991 argued that division of labor should be considered based on the common restrictions of the activity, so scheduling, whether your secretary can can fit you in. No, like scheduling as in uh, 
the, the amount of time that people have, raw material access, biological strength, and symbolic significance of production. Garrow used Neolithic napping, knapping with a K, making stone tools, as her example, noting that napping can be scheduled around child caring by any person with suitable hand-eye coordination, and that evidence of large groups visiting quarries for long periods of time would allow women equal access to materials. Grave goods can identify gender as well, although in some societies, such as Bronze Age Denmark, there appears to be a greater overlap between genders than between age groups. That is to say, jewelry, brooches, and weapons may be shared between gender groups, but strictly confined to certain life stages within those groups. Osteological analysis is another common method of distinguishing gender in a population. That would really be sex, though, wouldn't it? Um... Wear and tear well, no, on skeletal. Not necessarily. Like osteological analysis being like um like at Abu Herrera, like when they Oh when the, they had like the like yes. wear on so this is a, a famous um case study of skeletal remains from a site in Syria that yeah. um uh looked at lots and lots of individuals and was able to to some degree figure out what they did with their time. Right. Like based whether on it be the wear like, on their bones. Yeah, whether it be like um squatting and running for like hunting or uh-huh. um there is wear on the big toe bone if you were kneeling and grinding there mm-hmm. were things from basket like if making you're kneeling with your like toe tucked under yeah like yeah and um and there was wear on the teeth and and some like and finger bones from basket weaving um and things like that so if if labor is gendered mm-hmm. um then then, then it, to this extent yeah. osteology can can tell okay yeah, so based on wear and tear on skeletal remains, varying patterns of arthritis, things like that, uh, can indicate division of labor based on gender and also age, mm-hmm. especially with things like arthritis. It comes with sort of more advanced age usually. Yeah. It doesn't do us a lot of good to just assign a gender to people in the archaeological record. Right. Like it we doesn't... don't really get a lot out of that. So because human gender is complex and the the way that a society conceptualizes gender and sort of the spectrum thereof, um, it totally varies from culture to culture across time. Here's a a bit of a case study. You have indigenous American individuals who are two-spirit. And so this Mm -hmm. comes from the Indian Health Service, um, which is uh, part of the federal health program for American Indians and Alaska Natives. Yeah, this is all, all of this is pulled directly from this website uh, about, from, from the Indian Health Service website, specifically about two-spirit, two-spirit. individuals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Though two-spirit may now be included in the umbrella of LGBTQ+, plus, uh, the term two-spirit does not simply mean someone who is a Native American or Alaska Native and gay. Start now Thank you, basics. federal government. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Um, traditionally, baby steps. I know. <laughs> traditionally, Native American two spirit people were male, female, and sometimes intersexed individuals who combined activities of both men and women with traits unique to their status as two spirit people. In most tribes, they were considered neither men nor women. They occupied a distinct alternative gender status. In tribes where two spirit males and females were referred to with the same term, this status amounted to a third gender. In other cases, two-spirit females were referred to with the distinct term and therefore constituted a fourth gender. Although there were important variations in two-spirit roles across North America, they shared some common traits. Those traits being specialized work roles. Male and female two-spirit people were typically, so this is, we're talking about biological male and female Mm -hmm. two-spirit people. 
I I believe so. Because it's, yes. ki- it's kind of self-defeating. I know. To- it's Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an oxymoron. No, not really an oxymoron. It's just wrong. Nope. It's it's just- okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so two-spirit people were typically described in terms of their preference for and achievements in the work of the, quote, opposite sex or an activity specific to their role. Two-spirit individuals were experts in traditional arts, such as pottery making, basket weaving, and the manufacture and decoration of items made from leather. Among the Navajo, two-spirit males often became weavers, usually women in men's work, as well as healers, which was a male role. By combining these activities, they were often among the wealthier members of the tribe. Two-spirit females mm, engaged in activities such as hunting and warfare and became leaders in war and even chiefs. Um, Also... All of this is written in the past tense. Yeah. I just want to call attention to the fact that it's written in the past tense and two-spirit individuals exist. Yes. Yes. Now. Good point. Uh, Yeah. It it was pulled directly from the website. No, and I just (laughs) – but this is something that that people might not necessarily think about when reading something. Just saying. Gender variation. A variety of other traits distinguish two-spirit people from men and women, including temperament, dress, lifestyle, and social roles. Spiritual sanction. Two-spirit identity was widely believed to be the result of supernatural intervention in the form of visions or dreams and sanctioned by tribal mythology. In many tribes, two-spirit people filled special religious roles as healers, shamans, and ceremonial leaders. Same-sex relations. Two-spirit people typically formed sexual and emotional relationships with non-two-spirit members of their own sex, forming both short- and long-term relationships. Among the Lakota, Mojave, Crow, Cheyenne, and others, two-spirit people were believed to be lucky in love and able to bestow this luck on others. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Most indigenous communities have specific terms in their own languages for the gender variant members of their communities and the social and spiritual roles those individuals fulfill. With over 500 surviving Native American cultures, attitudes about sex and gender can be very diverse. Even with the modern adoption of pan-Indian terms like two-spirit, not all cultures will perceive two-spirit people in the same way or welcome a pan-Indian term to replace the terms already in use by their cultures. The disruptions caused by conquest and disease, together with the efforts of missionaries, government agents, boarding schools, and white settlers, resulted in the loss of many traditions in Native communities. Two-spirit roles, in particular, were singled out for condemnation, interference, and many times violence. As a result, two-spirit traditions and practices went underground and disappeared or disappeared in many tribes. Today... Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Native people throughout North America are reviving the two-spirit role and its traditions. National gatherings of two-spirit people have been held since the early 1990s, and regional gatherings are held in many parts of the country. Now, Anna, Mm -hmm. did you see that, um, I think it was on, maybe it was on the CBC, that um, there was a story highlighting a a medical doctor, a two-spirit physician who opened a practice... Like specifically for yes, I did um, see that trans and yes. like non-binary and two-spirit mm-hmm. pa- patients. I did see that. Yeah, Pretty great. We should, um, yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. We should we'll link to that yeah. in our show notes. Um, okay, now it's time for bones, 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 <laughs> um, and it's also time for the reason why. Amber requested a brief biology lesson because I got really excited when I read this and I texted her about it. And just was met with, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> so now that we've had that, that quick primer, this is from a Sapiens article by Molly Behrman. 
And this is this is based on this is really cool because it's about forensic anthropological analysis of human remains and the complexity that um, intersects the idea of intersex kind of brings to that. So it's a great article. In assessing physical sex characteristics, an anthropologist evaluates the pelvis, just in case you didn't know, that is our hip bones, on a scale of one to five. It's connected to the leg bones. Yes, and the back bones. And the butt via bone. Via the sacrum. The butt bone. Yep. Well, the hip bone is the butt bone. But I digress. <laughs> in assessing physical sex characteristics, an anthropologist evaluates the pelvis on a scale of one, meaning very female, to five, meaning very male. For example, male pelvises are taller in that their iliac crests, which is where if you put your hands on your hips, that is where your hands are resting on. They're resting on your iliac crests. Hello, listeners, all putting your arms akimbo. I see you doing it. Whereas the female iliac crests tend to be flared outward, which is good because you have to accommodate a baby in there sometimes. You don't have to. I said sometimes. I mean, and you don't have to. It, the, the pelvis has to accommodate the baby if the baby's in there. A baby better be accommodated, otherwise it's a cramped baby. Um, no obligation for babies. Your body is your own, ladies. After tallying the scores of several segments of the pelvis, each of which is individually given a score between one and five, so there are specific features of the pelvis that are typically uh, variant between males and females, and those are scored, the anthropologist then decides if the skeleton is overall more male or more female. A spectrum is necessary because skeletal remains do not always fit into a simple binary. What? Go figure. Indeed, some pelvises are marked with a number three, meaning that they likely contain an equal number of male and female components, or they are too nondescript in those components to be assigned a sex category. If a pelvis is scored as a three, anthropologists are trained to, quote, assign its sex as, quote, undetermined, or to simply give it a question mark. No further guidance is offered to those in forensic anthropology as to what to do about pelvises marked with a three. There are no studies on the relationship between nondescript pelvises and the remains of intersex or transgender individuals. A premier text, Forensic Anthropology and Introduction, published in 2012, uses the word intersex once, only providing a working definition for the term. It does not address how to evaluate whether or not a skeleton is intersex. Furthermore, it does not use the term trans at all. So, so they just Forensic. like throw out the threes. It's just like, yeah. I mean, it, this and this is why this idea of intersex or or trans or you know not existing in a in a binary is really important because that three is insufficient. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, also that face like, you are making like the twos is correct. And the fours also like it's just those are scored as I know, but those are still but, scored as yeah, female enough and male enough. Pretty much, and then they did, but they didn't think about it beyond just like like every but, like you you're watching like this like, uh, like in the moment <laughs> like so you're you're going through this whole thing and just be like oh well guess you didn't but when this but when this was when the system was devised I don't know a hundred years ago the concept wasn't there yeah and I guess like you just learn what you learn and then suddenly well, that's it's, why this... suddenly it's 2012 and everyone's like. Burr. Well, I mean, yeah, we got to that point, but that that's why this article yeah. is really important this is and, and this idea is really important. So forensic anthropologists have long accepted that no skeleton is completely male or female from birth, but most have little understanding of the murky middle of the spectrum. The human body already shifts between displaying traditionally male and female skeletal characteristics during a human's lifespan. This is going to blow your mind like a salami. Oh my God. Just wait. There's some in my Just fridge like and like... I had to stop eating it midway through because I got too freaked out. 
<laughs> fermented meat. So look at the human jaw. Look at it. We look at it. We all lose our baby or deciduous teeth, which are then replaced with permanent adult teeth. But if we lose an adult tooth, there is no new tooth to replace it. We're not sharks. And the socket begins to resorb as bone resorption outpaces bone deposition. So basically the bone that once made up your, your, the tooth socket kind of fills in, the socket fills in. In a male, if enough teeth are lost, the, enchi- the entire jaw regresses and will take on the appearance and structure of a female jaw. So bone isn't growing at the same rate that it's resorbing to fill in those tooth holes, and the shape of the jaw will actually change. This is because – oh, no, this was only phase one of mind-blowing. Hang no, on. I read ahead. Okay. This is because the original blueprint for all human bodies is female. This phenomenon could lead an anthropologist to mistake a set of remains as female in death even if the person was male. So it depends on what what body parts remain, right? So if if the pelvis is there and says male, but it's not but it's not present in the remains, all you have is skull and mandible, you might think that that skull belonged to a female. With transgender and intersex individuals, forensic anthropologists face additional challenges. For example, what does the human skeleton of an individual who undergoes sexual reassignment surgery and the ensuing hormone replacement therapy to change from a male to a female look like? What are the unique characteristics of a human skeleton that contains aspects of both maleness and femaleness from birth? What should a forensic anthropologist do with this information other than, and here's here's your point, Amber, other than writing off the skeleton sex category as undetermined and how it might relate to all those problematic pelvises categorized as threes? Such ambiguity prevents us from finding out who these people really were that these remains belong to, and it is no longer enough to assign a label of nondescript or to say, I don't know. Wasn't that cool? That is so cool. I'm really freaked out. Well, but also, it's not a good episode of The Dirt if you don't leave it really freaked out a little bit. Oh, man. What a trip. Um, we're not done yet though. We've gone from the elation of new discoveries to, um, what's actually a really, um, meaningful and and kind of poignant archaeological case study. Yeah. Um, and this is a, this is a modern archaeological story in that Mm -hmm. the archaeology is modern. modern. Um, but not like Leonard Woolley modern. No, like within your and my lifespan. Yeah. And it comes from BAM! In southeastern Iran. Is it? Maybe it's bomb. I don't know. I would have to see it spelled. Yeah. It might be. It's probably bomb. Okay. Breaking the borders. Violating the norms. An archaeological survey of an intersex in a traditional society. Bomb. Southeastern Iran. And the authors of this study are Mariam Dejamkoy. I'm sorry, Farsi speakers and Persian name havers. Um, and Leila Papali Yazdi. And so... Um, a lot of this is going to come from the article itself, but we'll give you a heads up when we are editorializing. <laughs> I mean, you'll probably be able to tell. <laughs> it goes from academic to like, oh, yes, <laughs> someone else is writing now. Um, <laughs> thanks to archaeology and its methods, the authors of this article um, are now able to recreate some parts of the life of an intersex per person living in bomb the town which was destroyed by a devastating earthquake in 2003 the material culture related to this individual was found during a historical archaeological excavation conducted five years after the earthquake among the debris of an upper-class family who all died in this disaster such a detailed narration is almost impossible in normal conditions even with an anthropological interview 
Sex is a very confidential matter of Iranian lives, a fact which has made the study of sexuality, especially of their private body parts, almost impossible. It should be noticed that even though the authors are practitioners in the Iranian society, reconstructing an intersex sexual life without referring to the material culture could be a different experience for them. A 6.8 on the Richter scale. Earthquake. Well, it's it's on the... The MW scale. What is which is that? The Richter, the Richter scale is no longer used, and is I forget it? what M. What? No, I forget what MW stands okay. for, but it's the new scale. A six point eight earthquake occurred in Bomb on twenty six on the twenty sixth of December two thousand three. The earthquake struck the town at five twenty seven a.m. when most of the residents were still sleeping. More than half of Bomb's residents, approximately forty thousand persons, died in the quake, mainly because of the flimsiness of the mud brick and wood houses they lived in. Um, which is not to insult these. This is us talking. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not to insult these people's houses. Mud brick is a traditional building material and is great for the climate in Iran, but it's not great in an earthquake. Many nope. materials are not great in earthquakes. Um, Correct. So. Ahem. One house that the authors of this article excavated in the wake of the earthquake revealed some parts of an individual's secret life. Um, it was the material remains of a still alive intersex individual. Actually, most of the things that the archaeology of the recent past deals with belong to the realm of objects. The archaeology of the recent past is the archaeology of, of, of we who are alive, the archaeology of trauma, emotion, and intimate involvement. During the excavation in a house in Bidabadi Ali, a set of amorous letters between two teenagers, Saman and Faranak, their photos and diary were found. The letters were written over an eight-year period in the mid-1990s. This collection had been hidden in a parcel in a storeroom in the corner of the yard. Hiding the letters was understandable since a relationship between opposite sexes before marriage is taboo in such a traditional society of Iran. Um, it should also be considered that the love letters were stored in such a way that no one in the house could find them. In Iran, marriage is the main factor in regular in regularization and the expression of sexuality. As a mutual friend helping the lovers so to solve their problems, Farinat kept the love letters in her parents' house. After reading the letters, the duality of Saman's identity became clear to us. In the older letters, Saman was addressed with a feminine name, uh, Satara. In the newer ones, Saman was mentioned as a person who had changed his sex from female to male. Just after the surgery, he fell in love with a girl, Roya, who had been his classmate. The other themes of the letters were generally concentrated on their romance, their desire to get married, and their relative's awkward reaction to Saman's new identity and his romantic relationship with Faranak. Uh, the photos were a collection of memorial reminiscent photos of Saman and Roya, or both of them plus their mutual friend Faranak. It seems that most of the photos had been taken in secret in Faranak's house where, when her parents were out. After breaking up, Faranak had kept all the collection furtively in the house storeroom. The diary was a joint one. Both Saman and Roya had written in it. Most of its content were romantic poems and short notes from Saman to Roya or vice versa. Overall, the letters, photos, and other documents indicated the rejection of Saman in society and his efforts to prove himself as a normal man. Archaeological evidence, especially the letter contents, shows that the society treated him in four general ways. Banishing, denial, compassion, and curiosity. In all mentioned approaches, the rejection of him as a man, as an individual who can have a normal life, is quite clear. This refusal was not only from the society, especially Faranak's family, but also from Saman's own family and close friends. The article goes on to relate why more of the details of Saman's life and to speculate on some of the sociocultural reasons why Saman might have had such a hard time gaining acceptance in his community. The article closes with some really profound thoughts. 
Although it is claimed that the basis that the basis of gender identity is the body, in reality, the basis of the predominant gaze of the cultural structures. The body is no more than an object, an object in which we lose or forget ourselves and that others impose its identity on it. The body has a passive and objective relationship with sexual identity. Are bodies each other's objects? The individual's agency is not very important in this regard. The body is restricted to its surface, what is visible to others. The skin as a boundary separates from the outside from inside, so analyzing someone's inside is unbecoming. Whatever we cannot observe by our own eyes is unreal and unacceptable. The body is an unfinished organism, citing Leila's 2000, uh, which gets completed by a dominant view, one which suggests or determines and defines ideal forms of being. Right, so that, I mean... First of all, it's a it's a really kind of heart wrenching story, um, but it drives home that gender and and someone's role as a gendered person in a community is is driven by perception, yeah, by by outward performance and then by perception inwards at the person, um, and so there from there we'll bring it back to what started this this episode, Casimir uh, Pulaski, so. This is from uh, a Smithsonian article. Pulaski, and his contemporaries for that matter, may not have known that he was different. He was baptized as a boy and presents as a man in portraits with facial hair and a slightly receding hairline. According to um, Estabrook, the, the forensic anthropologist that we mentioned earlier, quote, there is a lot of individual variation in how these conditions manifest in any person. Intersex individuals may be born with ambiguous genitalia, but the condition also has less obvious variations. People who are intersex can, for instance, appear male or female, but have internal organs or hormones that, quote, don't match their apparent sex. In many respects, revelations about Pulaski's probable intersex condition have little bearing on his legacy as a war hero. Um, and Estabrook says, Pulaski is Pulaski is Pulaski. What he did, his accomplishments don't change. But, she adds, the importance of his story does. Yep. In light of the new evidence, Pulaski can be seen as a valiant representative of a group that has largely been erased from the historical record, not only through omission, but also through deliberate attempts to shoehorn intersex individuals into one gender or another, sometimes with surgeries that have been deemed unnecessary and damaging. Um, and this is not from the Smithsonian article, I'm just editorializing, but... Keep in mind, if Pulaski had been surgically assigned a female at birth, he would never have gone on to participate in the Revolutionary War, never saved George Washington's life. Maybe George Washington would have never been president. Maybe we never even won the war, and maybe the U.S. would still be a British colony. But that's not even the most important takeaway. So back to the Smithsonian article. It makes Pulaski's defining participation in America's fight for independence take on another level of significance. Intersex people were there, says Estabrook. They can be part of that story, too. And they're part of our story. Mm-hmm. So that's why we wanted them to be the subject of this story. Because yeah. intersex people exist and have yes. existed. And so... Probably forever. And Since humans. will, as long as there are humans. That seems likely. Yeah. So... This was, we felt, an important one to do, but it was also a really interesting one um, with history and science and even a little romance thrown in. So, oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you all for listening and yeah. supporting the dirt. Um, 
We will be back in your ears soon with all kinds of new content, and you can find that content on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your pod content. Follow us on Facebook. There, we are The Dirt Podcast. We have so many great things that we share and that people send to us and photos. Yeah, it's a really fun community. Yeah, Come it's join fun. it. Join it. Or, I mean, or don't just go to our website, which is thedirtpod.com. You can follow us on Instagram at thedirtpod. You can follow us on Twitter at dirtpodcast. And if you have thoughts or want to know more about intersex people or any of the things that we talk about on the podcast, you can shoot us an email at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you.